Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to Tax Tuesday. Hopefully everybody's out there and live and kicking. This is uh, Toby Mathis, and I got uh, Jeff Webb there on a different cam. Yes, sir. All right, so let's dive in. We got a lot to go over. We have a people diving into the room, so we'll let you guys kind of come on into the room. Let us know, by the way, if you can hear us, if you could tell us where you're at. So just city and state would be great. There's Atlanta. Titusville, Alaska, San Francisco, Plano, Wasilla, Muckleteo. Oh my gosh, now it's just going fast. Akron, <laughs> uh, Westlake, Pennsylvania, Fayetteville, Huntsville, Baltimore, Tampa, Florida, San Jose, Largo, New York, Birmingham, Alabama, Fremont, Louisville. We've got people from all over the place. So uh, we'll just dive right on in since we're Jeff and I, which, how are you doing, Jeff? Just, you haven't said anything yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> You're all right, Jeff. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I'm fine. All right. So we got a lot to dive into. We got a lot to do. So let's just jump right on in. So you can ask your questions. Uh, you can ask them live via the, the, the Q&A feature in Zoom. So you'll see the question and answer, not the chat, but the question and answer is where you ask your questions. You can always send them in via tax Tuesday at andersonadvisors.com. And uh, if, if you're needing a real detailed response, like a professional response to a specific set of uh, questions that pertain to you, we need you to become a client to do that. If it's just general tax questions, we just answer them. And what do we say? It's fast, fun, and educational. Yeah, we always try to make sure that uh, we de- demystify this world of taxation and uh, see what we can do. We have a whole bunch of questions. Before we go into all the questions, I will say that we have a bunch of accountants that are here to help you. So we have Ian, Elliot, Christos, Pio, Dana. You got Jeff and me. You got uh, Patty. You got uh, Matthew and, and Xander, Ander. I never know. Alexander, Mr. Kretz, uh, helping us with the tech. How do you want me to like? Okay, I'm not even going to ask. Andrew's fine. What's that? Andrew is fine. See, but then it says Alexander on that. And I feel bad calling you Andrew. So I'm just going to call you Alexander since since I can be that way. Uh, But we have a whole bunch of people there to answer your questions. And uh, we can make sure that uh, your questions get answered. So let's dive into the the main questions for today. And uh, as always, we will uh, go through each one of these, go through all the questions that we're going to answer, and then we'll go through each one, as well as answer your comments and your questions as you go along. Uh, Number one is, what is the 1031 exchange? How is it used? And is there any concern that it might go away? Seems like the only option if you're trying to avoid long-term capital gains on property. We'll answer that. As a new wholesaler, what is the best way to set up my business structure? We'll dive into that one too. How does the tax work on rent to own? How does it work? How do, how do the taxes work is really what I think it is. The non-refundable deposit, monthly cash flow, and the back end. How, how are all those things treated from a tax standpoint? Uh, I have a SFR, which stands for single family uh, rental that has been passive rental property since 2003. I have not taken depreciation on my 1040. Now I want to sell the single family residence, take the profits and pay the long-term capital gains. However, if I have not taken depreciation, then there is no recapture, correct? Or will the IRS take depreciation recapture regardless? So we'll go through that one. Does a disregarded Wyoming LLC pay the $800 franchise tax in California? Please advise on any strategies to avoid having to pay the $800 franchise tax in California. By the way, I'm seriously considering moving to Nevada if I can convince my employer to allow me to work remotely. 
So somebody's having a lot of fun with California franchise taxes. I am a full-time real estate agent with a broker's license, though I do not currently run my own brokerage. I am planning to begin investing in rental properties as well. Is it a good idea to put together these businesses under an LLC or S corporation, or is it more beneficial to keep things separate? Good question, and we'll answer that. I have a rental and Airbnb on my property, plus I work from home. What part of home repair, landscape, et cetera, can I write off? So we'll jump into that one as well. I need to create an entity for my business as a real estate agent. I'm not sure which entity is best for me and pay myself out of my business income separately. Not sure which corp is best, question mark. So we'll get into that. You got some choices there. I have been buying investment properties for the past five years and are under my name. I have a separate personal account where my rental income is deposited. My question is, how should I formalize my business structure if they are under my name and my personal account? So great questions thus far. So we'll keep answering. Uh, Then the last question is, I buy and sell vacant land. I typically buy, then resell with owner financing, deed of trust, mortgage deed, et cetera. My question is twofold. One, would I be considered a dealer given I do... 400 properties a year, though there are no structures, and my intent is to resale on terms, not flip for cash. Number two, would it be possible for me to save on taxes by becoming a limited partner, Uh, create a general partner operated by an LLC that my team owns operates? I just put in the money and stay out of the day-to-day. I'm not very actively involved as it is. So we will go through all of those. There uh, sounds like we got some good ones today. So, Jeffrey. Yes, sir. Here's the first one. What is the 1031 exchange? How is it used? And is there any concern that it might go away? The Section 1031 allows you to sell an investment property uh, through a qualified intermediary and then replace that property. So you relinquish one property and replace it with another property. In general, you have to pay more for the replacement property, or at least as much for the replacement property as you do for the relinquished property. There's time frames you have to identify that replacement property within 45 days and purchase it within 180 days. And you can actually identify several properties and just choose one or two, whichever serves you. So it, it gets quite a bit more complicated than that. If you're going to do a 1031 exchange, you first thing you want to do is go find a good QI, good qualified intermediary. And they will walk you through this transaction and keep you out of trouble. Is there a concern that it may go away? My personal feelings is this isn't going anywhere. Unlike uh, you hear them talk about one to get, uh, do away with a step up of basis and things like that. Those are permanent changes that make taxes go away. Whereas this 1031 is just deferring when the tax is going to hit. It, it's not going to be on this sale, but it may be on another sale down the road. So I, I really don't see a logical way or logical reason for this going away. What say you, Toby? Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I, I know that it became part of the uh, Biden platform on taxation that they were saying, hey, we'll let you 1031 exchange. They were going to put a threshold limitation on it of a million bucks and things like that. I've never <clears throat> looked at it. I've always looked at that as kind of the red herring. That was a negotiating tactic. I can't see them making it go away because too many people utilize it. And like you said, it's not like it's a, it's a tax avoidance. It's a tax deferral technique. Now, if you pass away with the replacement property, then you have that step up in basis, you could avoid paying tax entirely. So they're addressing the step up in basis. I believe they want to limit it to a million dollars a step up. And they, and they even tried talking about a million dollar limitation on the 1031 exchange. I just, I just don't see it going anywhere. Yeah, I agree. Big things for 1031 though. Like if you're somebody who buys properties and you you can buy multiple properties. So if you want to do a 1031 exchange, you certainly can. You could sell one property and buy 10. You can, you can sell 10 and buy one. As long as you're using a qualified intermediary, uh, there are some pretty tricky ways to use 1031 exchanges, including in conjunction with like a 121 exclusion on a home. There's some interesting things you could do there to minimize your tax hit and to take advantage of multiple provisions. Uh, The other thing is 
just depending on your scenario, a lot of people get this weird fear of capital gains when realistically, if you spread it out over a period of years, it's not that big of a, of a deal. And uh, they'll, they'll oftentimes run to the 1031 exchange without considering alternatives like an installment sale. So I would just say that if you're in the real estate world, familiarize yourself with a bunch of the, the benefits to being involved in the, in the real estate side and that there's other ways that you could uh, defer taxation including spreading it out over a period of years. Yeah, a real important point of this is when you do a 1031 exchange, you don't get any cash out of the deal. It goes into your next property. So yeah, I agree with you, Toby. Maybe the installment method, if you if you want to sell and get out from underneath the property, cash out, 1031 is not the way to do it. Somebody just made a, a good comment. They just said, hey, if I'm under $80,000, is my capital gain rate zero? Technically, yes, your long-term capital gains rate would be zero up till eighty thousand, and then and then it goes into the fifteen percent tax bracket. And so, depending on what your scenario is, what your what your income is, as to whether or not you even need to be worried about the ten thirty one exchange, <laughs> you might be shocked that you don't really have that much tax to owe anyway. Which is why you always do the calculation ahead of time. Here's another one. As a new wholesaler, what is the best way to set up my business structure? I got a really short answer for that. I, I think I would always, most always do this through a corporation. Yep. Yeah, I, I got nothing to add to that, Toby. Well, you know, I always say like, we know what the terms mean. So when you say wholesaler, what are you really talking about? And a wholesaler is somebody who basically gets a, gets a property under contract and then sells the contract right. Mm-hmm. And so they're either going to sell the right to the to close on that property. So, for example, let's say that I got a a property under contract for fifty thousand dollars, and I go to Jeff and say, "Hey, do you want to buy my right to close? I'll sell it to you for twenty five hundred bucks." And Jeff says, "That's actually a really good deal. I was looking for a property like that. Great, I'd make the twenty five hundred bucks, right?" Uh, or I close on the fifty, and then I immediately turn around and do a double close and sell it to Jeff. Mm-hmm. And in either one of those, you're looking at, you're going to have ordinary income that's hitting you when you're really going out and you're running, like when we see wholesalers that are true businesses where they're going out and they're, they're dropping a lot of mail, they're, they're shooting out text messages, they're using PropStream and some of these other tools to figure out who's behind properties and they're reaching out, and they're negotiating deals all the time that individual is, is going to be some sort of business. It's going to more than likely be an S corp or a C corp from a tax standpoint, a corporation or LLC from the state standpoint. And of course, an LLC could be taxed as an S corp or as a C corp. So it always depends on what it is that you're doing. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm looking at this going, you're a wholesaler, you're a business. I'm putting it into a, some sort of corporate structure more than likely an S-Corp to start. Yeah, we sometimes have people talk about, well, how can I make the, I don't want it to be ordinary income. I want it to be capital gain or loss. Actually, you don't. It's the same tax rate for both capital gains and ordinary in a corporation. Problem with ordinary losses is they're of little use unless you have capital gains to offset them. They kind of get trapped there. Makes sense. And uh, if this is the first time you're hearing some of this stuff, by all means, visit our YouTube channel. There's a number of uh, videos on this and our tax and asset protection courses. We always go into some of the good, the, the, the bad and the ugly when it comes to taxation. Uh, speaking of workshops, we do have a the Infinity Investing Workshop coming up on September 11th. So just to let you guys know, if you haven't been to an Infinity Investing Workshop, it's really straightforward. We go over two types of investments. Specifically, we're looking at stocks and we're looking at real estate. And we spend a day diving into the appropriate way to invest and how we see our most successful clients investing. Uh, It's year after year, month after month. It doesn't matter whether it's going up, down, sideways. Our clients, uh, the, the good investors tend to make money no matter what. And we'll show you what they do and how they do it. It's not a a, a difficult process to get involved in. You have to be a little patient because it's not a quick get rich quick. It's definitely 
a mindset and a different philosophy that is a long-term philosophy. So if you want to be successful over a long period of time, do what other people that have been successful over a long period of time have been doing and apply the same principles. Uh, We're not going to be doing anything that's crazy. It's going to be, here's mathematical certainty. The easiest way to look at it is we don't want to be gamblers. We want to be the casino. So we'll show you how to be in the casino. So you can, by all means, join us. It's absolutely free. So uh, we'll, we'll hopefully Patty, yep, Patty shared out that link with y'all. If you'd like to come on in and, uh, and join us, it's uh, it's actually fun. If you've never spent a day uh, learning investing, it's actually kind of a blast because we bring in some really great people, Pia Washington, Nicole and, and, and Debrasia and, and Aaron Adams, uh, just great people who are just have a ton of knowledge and a lot of, a lot of success. So they do a really great job. All right. How does the tax work on rent to own? The non-refundable deposit, monthly cash flow, and the back end. What say you, Jeff? This would seem to be an easy answer, but it's not because the way it's treated and the way the IRS looks at it. Uh, the non-refundable deposit that you mentioned is uh, typically what we would call a lease option, mm-hmm. a lease purchase option. So that can be treated one of two ways. IRS is going to either look at that as an unexercised lease purchase option, or it's going to look at it as a sale at the time the option's paid. And and the two main factors they look at is, have you increased the rent? Are you asking more rent payment than is fair market value, fair rental value? And the second factor is that back end, that closing price or sales price, is that a bargain rate? So if they're seeing those two things where you're asking for more for rent, but you're asking less for that purchase price than is expected, they're going to consider this a they're going to consider this a sale. That non-refundable deposit will be a down payment on the property. A portion of those monthly cash pay, payments are going to be considered part of the sales price gain on that. The other side of that is if they don't do that, that it's if you're just getting fair market rent, it's just a future, say in the next five years, they could exercise this deposit or this, this lease option, they could do that. They're not going to do, a, it'll be treated just like a normal rental. It's just once you trigger certain things that you start triggering income like a sale. You'll hear it called a land contract or contract for deed and things like that, where they call them different terms. And what you have to figure out is what the relevant rights are between the parties. Because all of those things would be an installment sale. So mm-hmm. is it a lease with an option or is it an actual lease to own where you're, you're in essence, you're making a partial payment every month on that deal, on, on that purchase. If I see a rent to own, I'm almost always wanting to see two agreements. I want to see the lease and I want to see an option. And if they put down money on the option, then until they exercise it, then that money hasn't been earned yet. And the way option money is earned is the expiration of the option or the, or somebody actually exercising it. So if it, you know, if if they never exercise it, then you'd have a taxable event. We've seen this so many times. I mean, shoot, there's, there's, there's folks out there that have some pretty interesting interpretations of the tax law. They'll get there. They'll, they'll take option money. And they'll think it's never taxable, including when the person moves out or they said, hey, I'm not going to exercise the option. Well, that just became taxable to you. And you'll have people argue with you that, no, 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 it's not. And it's like, what, you just get to have free money? Did you, did you pay tax on it when you received it? No, it was an option. You know, and options are taxable uh, upon exercising it when it expires, you know, so, you know, or if it, you know, when, when it expires from either a time or whether you walk away and you say, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to abandon it. So, uh, or sell it. So it's, it's no different than, uh, than options are in the, uh, in the stock market. Right. So, so when you do a, a, a rent to own, you do need to be careful as to how it's treated the non-refundable deposit. If it's an, if it's for the option, then we would have to look and see what rights were, uh, were, were, were triggered. Is it the right to have the option? Because if in that particular case, it's not taxable to you. 
if you're receiving monthly cash flow, then it is it under the lease or is it a payment that is being made? So is it rents and upon expiration or excuse me, it, 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 upon exercising that option is all of a sudden a portion of that attributed towards a purchase price. So, you, you know, again, it, you, you have to look at what the rights are inside of the uh, inside of those contracts, regardless of what you call them. Yeah, I, I, I like we talk about rent to own and I prefer, like you were saying, that that lease option, you actually have to exercise that lease, op- lease option rather than your buying a little equity with every payment you make. I think those that makes it a lot more complicated. It does. That's why we always have to take a look at it. So people are always like, hey, I'm doing a, 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 a lease option. It's like, okay, but can we see the documentation? And then it'll, be, it'll end up being a, a disguised sale. Whoops. And you're like, hey, that's not exactly how it works. I don't care what you call it. I care about the rights that are between the relative parties. All right. So I have a single family rental that has been passive uh, rental property since 2003. I've not taken depreciation on my 1040. Now I want to sell the single family rental, take the profits and pay the long-term capital gains. However, I have not taken depreciation. Then there's no recapture, correct? Or will the IRS still hit you with the recapture? Jeff, what do you think? Yeah, there's actually a couple issues here. Not only will there be recapture, your basis will be lower. So let's say that you fully, you had this for 27 and a half years and it's fully depreciated. Your basis would be zero in, in the sale. So we want to, what you want to do is find, find a good CPA, EA, tax preparer, somebody who knows what they're doing. And if you're selling it in this year, you need to do a change of accounting method this year. It will allow you to take all the depreciation in the current year. You're still going to be subject to recapture, but I would rather pay the recapture and have that deduction than, than just... You're going to end up with a big... Chances are they're going to end up with a passive loss Yeah, when they take the, the, the depreciation. And then they'll, that'll be released, right? That'll be a released as ordinary loss when they sell the property. So you definitely want to make that change of accounting method. But to to answer the question here, the real specific question is, if you haven't taken depreciation, you still have to pay recapture. So the way the IRS words it, and it's not the IRS, the uh, uh, Congress words it is you may take depreciation, but you shall recapture. So you're going to have to pay recapture no matter what, whether you took the benefit or not. So I'm 100% with Jeff saying you're going to get hit here. You may as well, you, you know, it's a good thing you're, you're asking now before the tax year is over and before the sales done. Because what we want to do is make a, a change of a tax election before you file your final return or before, before you file your return in the year of the sale. We want to capture this in 2021 for sure and make sure that we are getting the benefit of all that depreciation and then fire the accountant that you've had since 2003 in the meantime. (laughs) Yeah. Like this is, this is well enough known. And you see this all the time with uh, people that'll have a second property or a third property and they're renting it out and they're, they're like, Oh, I'm just renting it out a little bit. And it's it's like, it doesn't matter. Right. You got to make sure that you're, that if this is an investment property that, that you are taking that depreciation because they're, they will make you pay taxes though you did. Anything else on that one, Jeff? No. If you look at the form where you calculate this gain, it actually says depreciation allowed or allowable, meaning either you took it or didn't take it, but should have. Yep. So it's not very nice. Definitely not very nice. Let's see. I sent over a question via email yesterday. Whenever we answered on this call, I probably not. Guys, we get about 400 questions a week. Our guys will go through and answer them and then we pick about 10. So yeah. So somebody's like, Hey, I just sent it. When are you going to hit it? <laughs> you could always ask the question in the, in the Q and a, if you want. And then somebody was asking about the capital gains. So the way it works is long-term capital gains are going to be zero, 15 or 20%, depending on what your income is. 
So if you are married filing jointly and you're below, I think it's $80,800 this year, you're, then you are in the 0% long-term capital gain trade. So the easiest way to think about it is if you are somebody who's making $50,000 a year and you do have long-term capital gains, you have about $30,000 of long-term capital gains that you can use up that's at the zero rate. And you know why is that important? Because you can adjust your basis if you've owned certain stocks for a long period of time and they've popped up. And let's just say you had a year, let's just say that COVID dealt you a low blow and that, that you had a you, you didn't have a great earning year. It might be this is the year where you where you sell some things to recognize capital gains and buy them right back. And all you're doing is resetting your basis so that if you sell them in the future, you don't have any gain. And is the gain included in the 80,000? Yes. So if you had, hey, I made 70,000 and then I had $50,000 of long-term capital gains, 10,000 of it would go in the 0% and uh, the, the remainder would be in the 15%. So it does get, it, it is utilized towards that figure. So that $80,000, that, that's for married filing joints. Yeah, uh, the single joint. is for forty thousand. Married filing separate is forty thousand, uh, and head of household is, I believe, fifty three, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Fifty four thousand. Yep. And then somebody just said, "Hey, I to- I heard Toby say in the wholesaler questions he'd recommend an S corp to start." Clint sometimes says C corp. It's always going to be based off of your facts. So if you're living off of the money, so if it's a wholesale and they're living off the money, I'm probably going to start them with an escort. If they are not necessarily living off the money or they're going to take it all out as salary and you want to qualify for loans, then that would be, uh, th- that would be something where I'd probably look at the C-Corp depending on what your scenario is. So, you know, in a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts there. So there's not a hard and fast. What I look at is if somebody is making money, active income that they need, the S corp is almost always going to save you money as opposed to just doing it as a sole proprietor. And if you're living off of that money and that money's coming out to you, you're going to be better off as an S corp from a tax standpoint. Now, what would push us to the side of saying, Hey, maybe we should be a C corp lots and lots of medical bills. Uh, lots of expenses that I can't write off necessarily as an S-corp. That might be a factor. And also, if I am trying to qualify for a loan and I don't want them to ha- to go through my S-corp, uh, but in the case that I just gave you where somebody's making their living at it, it's they're almost always going to have to. So again, it's, it's, it's usually you're sitting down and doing your weighing test with somebody who says, all right, what, do you, wh- what type of activity are you engaged in? What are you going to be doing over the next four or five years? Is it something where we should start off to where it's easy access to the capital or should we add that little bit of an extra complexity uh, via the C-Corp because you're building up a portfolio uh, of property and, uh, and that's what we're looking at. So you're, you're, you're doing your bit, a little bit of balancing, you're doing a little bit of weighing. So there's not a, this is the only rule. This is like, Hey, here's the considerations that we're looking at. And again, if, if somebody's just, somebody's working, I want to make it easy for them to get their money. And that's usually where we're going to start. Now, no matter what you do, you're not stuck. <laughs> so quite often you start off like every, every corporation pretty much starts off as a C corp and then you make the S selection. So sometimes we're looking at it going, Hey, this beginning year will be a C and then we'll make the S maybe next year. Or let's just see how we're doing money wise. It's not like you're, you have a gun to your head and you say, Hey, I have to you have to make this decision right now. And then it's, it, it's forever. No, it's, it's not like that. Like we can go back and we can, we could change things up as needed. Does a disregarded Wyoming LLC pay the 800 franchise tax in California? Please advise on any strategies to avoid having to pay the $800 franchise tax in California. And then it says, by the way, I'm seriously considering moving to Nevada. If I can convince my employer to allow me to work remotely. So they must not like their taxes in California. What do you think, Jeff? The Wyoming LLC is set up to avoid taxes in California because the presumption is that the Wyoming LLC is not doing business in California. It's doing business in Wyoming where it's organized. 
Now, it can sometimes get pulled into California. Uh, the most notorious way is California says, well, your shareholders, members, whatever, all live in California, and they're doing all the work for the, for the Wyoming LLC. So when we set these up, we try to set them up in a way that does not draw California's ire. I don't know that I would uh, move to Nevada just to avoid the $800 of tax. But if you're paying, like I was, serious amount of uh, personal taxes in California, that's a good reason to move. A lot of this depends on where you reside and where the... So it sounds like like this individual resides in California. So it used to be, I'll just tell you how it used to be. Used to be, as long as the LLC was owned by a trust, we would win these and the franchise tax board would tell you uh, you didn't have to pay it if the trust was the member. And then they went back and said, oh, no, if you're a uh, if, if it's a living trust or if you're the grantor, then it's still the individual. And we want the LLC to pay the what is it Form uh, 568 yes. as a as a foreign business doing business in California saying, hey, since you're the member and you're the member as the trustee of the trust or, you know, they would always concoct some hey, you're ultimately in control. Therefore, we think that the LLC is doing business in the state of California. Obviously, it sounds neat for the franchise tax board, but from a legal standpoint, that doesn't necessarily meet the uh, the constitutional requirements of doing business in a state. And then you end up with lots of franchise tax board court cases and everybody, you know, it's all over the place. So here's what we do. There's a way to avoid it completely. And there's two really easy ways right now. Number one is you use a California disregarded limited partnership. That is still a viable option. It sounds weird, but the Franchise Tax Board recognized that it is not a taxable entity from a uh, tax standpoint for franchise tax, and it's called a disregarded limited partnership. It's a limited partnership in which, in essence, you are controlling both the limited partnership and the general partner interest, more than likely doing it through, through an LLC. So that if you have multiple properties, let's say we have a bunch of properties and you're using limited partnerships to hold them, you might have one entity that's ultimately taxable in the state of California and you, you know, so that you can avoid paying multiple $800. That's not our favorite. Our favorite right now is the uh, Wyoming Statutory Trust, where it's considered a grantor trust and it's not taxable for franchise tax purposes. And it's still given the same protections as the limited liability companies. So what you'll oftentimes see us doing now is, is going for the Wyoming statutory trust as opposed to using the LLC or the limited partnerships. The limited partnership has been on their target since I think it's been about a year. I want to say it's been about a year and a half since the franchise tax board came out with their opinion on it. And uh, we think that they're, you know, that the, legislature is going to address it by saying, hey, we're either going to make it something that 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 this definitely applies to because they need the they need the funds. So we we think that's the route they're going. They just haven't done it yet, which leaves the Wyoming statutory trust as our best friend. Yes, you could use other states if you really wanted to. Uh, we find that it's uh, Wyoming is very effective and very economic. So it's like, why spend thousands of dollars a year doing something in Delaware when you could do it for, you know, a couple hundred in, in, in Wyoming? So that's where we end up going. So hopefully that answers that question. You don't have to move, but if you do, you know, just make sure that you're not doing the pretend move. Hey, I bought a condo in, in uh, Nevada. Now I'm saying that's my residence. Now you actually have to move and you have to spend more time in in Nevada. You got to make sure you're registering your cars here, register to vote here and all that jazz to make sure that it's legitimate. Otherwise, California uh, would m- more than likely be giving you a look-see. Um, California gained a lot of no- notoriety over their $800 fees, but it wasn't because they had the highest fees in the country. It was the tenacity that they went after very tenuous relationships with California that really got them in hot water. Even the courts had to tell them that they needed to back off on certain relationships. I had be commissioner. They actually followed somebody into uh, Nevada. And here's the other ones. People always 
assume that if I if I leave California, that the cal- the taxes don't follow me. That's not true. If you had gain, that it's unrealized capital gains. So if I owned shares in a company that got that gained substantial value, and then I leave, California can still follow me around and say, whenever you sell that, I want my piece. And that's ultimately what happened in uh, the Hyatt case and a few others is they're, they're, they're following somebody who sells after they are no longer a California resident, but a big portion of the growth was why they resided there. And, and California says we're entitled to our tax and they usually win those. It's just one of those weird things. Somebody says, I think California still wants taxes on 1031 deferred gains. Absolutely, Bill. You, you just hit a nail on the head. They actually say like, going back to our very first question today about the 1031s, it's a deferral. And they want you to track it if it's from California property. Even if you go into another state, they still want you to track it in case it ever becomes taxable because then they just raise their hand and say, hey, the portion that was deferred for California, pay up now. So yeah, California is, you know, we, we call them vampires because man, they, they really, they, they can smell that, but they can smell that money wherever you may be and they follow you around and they'll just latch on. All right. I am a full-time real estate agent with a broker's license, although I do not currently run my own brokerage. I am planning to begin investing in rental properties as well. Is it a good idea to put pull together these businesses under an LLC or S-Corp, or is it more beneficial to keep things separate? What do you think, Jeff? I, I would prefer to keep all of these separate. Ideally, I keep each property separate, and I don't mingle them with my real estate business. I'd hate to be held personally liable for something that happens when these properties and have to hand over my commission to somebody to make good on an accident or something on one of my properties. So ideally, I keep all of these in their own entity. Now, could you group them as all disregarded LLCs under a NAS corporation or something like that? Yeah, you probably could. Do you see any danger with doing something like that, Toby? Yeah, I wouldn't put the rental properties under an escort just because if I ever have to take it out to refi it, it's That's true. appreciated. I would get smacked with the tax whack. So, but I, your point's taken. Just because you have a separate entity doesn't mean it's a separate taxable entity. So, you could have a, for example, in this particular case, this person's a real estate agent. Well, this goes back to the, the, the same question about the wholesaler. If I have an active business where I'm making my living out of it, I'm going to start with an escort. In your state, it probably requires an escort. In other words, they want to know who the owner of the brokerage is. And the only way they can know that is if it's going to be an escort or an LLC taxed as an escort, because then they can see who the actual owners are on the, on the 1120S that gets filed. So that's always where we're going to start there. On the Rental property side, it's a little different because rental property is presumed to be passive, which means you don't have to worry about taking a salary out of it. You could literally set up a disregarded LLC if if you wanted to do it that way, or you could set it up as a partnership as an LLC, and you could have all your properties and sub-LLCs underneath that one LLC. You could have 100 pieces of property going on a single tax return. Uh, There are reasons that you do that. You know, the big ones are from a lending standpoint, there's a big difference between being on page one of Schedule E and page two for the amount of rev- uh, credit they'll give you for the revenue. They'll give you 70% of page one, they'll give you 100% of page two. So there's reasons that we do that. There's reasons you do it also if you're selling properties. But in any case, you want to keep those activities completely separate. So, like Jeff said, if you have a liability occurrence on one of your rental properties that it doesn't follow into, you know, hey, I have three closings this month and and all of a sudden you have you have uh, some lawyer trying to attach those proceeds and you're like, gosh, bless it. If only I had listened to Jeff and kept it separate, right? It's not hard to do to keep your rental property separate from your active business. And it's it's absolutely essential in in, in, in many cases. And that's the route I would go. So I would keep those separate if I was you. Anything else on that, Jeff? No, something you were saying about the S corporation for the real estate brokerage, because they need to know who you are. 
who, who's actually doing that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, putting those rental properties in a partnership, each under their own LLC, you can have anonymity there that you may not be able to have in that S corporation. Absolutely. Great point. And, you know, again, if you're the, if you're a successful real estate agent and you're, you're putting your face out there, obviously in advertising, do you want somebody to be able to pull up every property that you own and say, well, let's just see, here's Jeff, Jeff Webb realtor. Let me see what Jeff owns. And I find 20 properties, you know, sometimes it's begging an issue. So I, you know, we're big privacy buffs. We see that not a lot of people get sued when you can't find out what they own, just fact of the matter is usually takes the, uh, the, the impetus of somebody to chase after you. But if, but we've had plenty of clients have frivolous suits when they were, when it was easy, when they were easy pickings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we can, we want to defer, we want to make sure we avoid that if, if, if possible. Let's skip through some of the Q and I could see that the guys are and gals, I should say, the guys and gals, but our, our professionals are absolutely knocking it out of the park. There, were, There's over 100 answered questions in writing thus far, and uh, they're just pumping through it. So if you have a question, this is the day to do it. These guys are on fire right now. So Dana and Chris Dos and uh, Ian, and they're just doing a great job. Elliot, so Pio, she, he's, he's, he's killing it. I could just see all these guys knocking them away. So that's, that's awesome. Uh, so I'm just going to go jump right into another question. I have a rental and Airbnb on my property. Plus I work from home. This is your type of question, by the way, Jeff. Whenever I look at these, I'm always like, Jeff will break this down. What part of home repair, landscape, et cetera, can I write off? I'll be honest. When I first read this question, I was like, wait, what? You have a rental and an Airbnb, and it's, apparently it's your primary residence too. So how do, you, how do you see this working, Toby? Well, okay. So let's just break it down into little pieces. So it's where they, it's where they live. Mm-hmm. So it's their home. And maybe they house hack and they have Airbnb. So maybe they have a long-term tenant that, that stays in the upstairs. Let's, let's pretend it's three bedrooms or three uh, levels. Okay. The upstairs, they have a rental that somebody's there for the long haul. And then on the second floor, it has a beautiful view and they Airbnb it. And people come in all the time because it looks out over the ocean. And then they have their, on the first floor, they have where they reside. And, but, but one of the rooms is used as their home office too, their administrative office of their home. So then the question becomes, what portion of the home is rental? What portion of the home is this Airbnb? And is it rental or is it not rental? Gets kind of fun. And then what portion of the downstairs, let's just say it's the first floor, what portion of that can they get reimbursement for? And there's a few little question marks there. So we, let's let's knock out the easy one first. You have a rental upstairs, and let's just say they're using up a third of the square footage on the rental. Then we would get depreciation. We would be able to write off the property, the real estate taxes. We'd be able to write off any expenses and repairs associated with that area, number one. Then we go to number two and say Airbnb. And the question is, is the Airbnb rental or is it ordinary income? And in order to do that analysis, you'd have to figure out how many days the average rental is. So if it's, let's say it's average Airbnb, it's three days and you're providing some sort of service with it, cleaning or, you know, coffee and things like that. That's not rental income anymore. That's a hotel. You'd still get your depreciation but it's no longer rental income, so we wouldn't bunch it with the uh, with the rental upstairs. It would be its own little its own little creature. And let's say that you were the one that was managing that, it would be active ordinary income. It would be subject to self employment tax too. But you could take a ton of depreciation on that third of the house. Technically, we could accelerate that depreciation, and I could write off a big chunk of my house in that first year. So like, it's going to end up being a huge positive. Then we look at downstairs and we say, all right, we had some landscape and things like that. Was the landscape required for 
the Airbnb? Was it something that was necessary? If you have a home office, are you meeting people there? So like, for example, if let's say that you were managing your Airbnb at your home and they were coming in, yeah, I would write that off. I'd write that off in a heartbeat. I'd say, yeah, it's necessary because that's that's where people come in. So anyway, so there's that's how I'd be breaking it down. I would I would have a few questions for this individual to get some more clarity on on, on what it is exactly they're doing. But just off of that, I'm kind of thinking that that Airbnb is going to be their ticket to getting a nice deduction. Uh, on the same token, we have uh, passive rental income. Uh, and passive loss that'll probably be coming off of a, a part of the, the part of the home that's used for that. And then uh, I still have my my home office, which again it, it it really depends on whether you have another business or you know whether you're able to do an administrative office in the home because you, you might find yourself in a really really great situation from a tax standpoint uh, operating your business this way. Oh, sounds good. I like the way you set that up. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Now, with with the Airbnbs, some things that we that we oftentimes do is in this might be one of those cases. It just depends on how the numbers line up. Is quite often you'll have a rental property that is a long term rental. You'll have the Airbnb which isn't. You can just rent it to a corporation that acts as the host. So quite often what you'll do is you'll have an individual create a corporation and you'll rent the other, like, so let's, again, I used a third, a third, a third. You'd rent that one third to the Airbnb corporation and let it be the host. And the reason I would do that would really be because I don't want necessarily to have a huge chunk of losses coming out to me, but also because I want to be able to offset the income via deductions something like the administrative office and maybe I'm not too worried about the tax bill. Like I might be making my living off of this. So maybe I don't want to take all the accelerated depreciation in one shot, but that would be something where guys like Jeff, they do a really good job at just here's option. Number one, here's option. Number two, we get to break it down. Don't you love questions like this? It's like, we can just make them do whatever we want. (laughs) Usually say, I have so many other questions. I know. There's a ton of questions coming in too. Our guys are killing it today. All right. I need to create an entity for my business as a real estate agent. I'm not sure which entity is best for me and pay myself out of my business income separately. Not sure which corp is best. So I think we've talked about this a couple of times today, but what do you think? I'll go back to what we said earlier for a real estate agent. I, I like the S corporation. I think you have to in many cases. There, there, I think there's going to be some states that may allow you not to be, but I still think the S corporations, the, the best choice, it has an easier way of getting money out of that S corporation. You, you put it in a corporation, you're either going to have to pull that money out either through salaries, which is okay, or dividends, which is less okay. I don't know that you'd want to do this as a partnership. I'm going to settle for S corporation because I can't think of a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. Somebody says, well, some states won't pay the commission to an entity and it must be paid to an individual. Yes, but there's a way to get that over there, Justin. (coughs) There's actually a IRS case and uh, it's not nominee. (laughs) No, actually there's uh, if, if you show and you give to your broker, for example, that you're under the exclusive control and you have an employment agreement with your S corp, then even if they pay it to you, you could reassign it over to the, to the S corporation. You have to show those two things though. You need to have an employment agreement and you need to make the payor who is going to pay you individually. You need to need to make them aware that you are under the exclusive control of that S corp. And I always screw up the case on it. I want to say it's like the, the, Fitzgimmons or Fitzgerald case or something like that. There was a, there's, there's actually a case on it, but yeah, usually you're going to have, you're going to look at your state law and say, Hey, what kind of entity can I be? A lot of uh, real estate agents start off as a sole proprietor for some unknown reason. I say that bad taste is timeless, but the reason I say that, I say that in jest, but your audit rate is about 800% higher as a sole proprietor and you lose no joke 94 to 95 percent of the time so i'm like 
Yeah, no, I don't want that. If I am an S corp, I will save money. Even I've done the numbers, even just straight across apples to apples, even at $25,000, you save about $1,500 a year as an S corp, even at 25,000. If you're at hundred thousand, it's close to 10 grand. It's about, it's, it's right around the eight, $9,000 mark. That's without even giving all the other tax incentives that come along with having an accountable plan, which is only possible through an escort. In other words, if I want to do an administrative office in the home, I have to have an escort. S or a C. And if I'm in, if I'm in real estate, chances are I have one choice. I'm going to be from a tax standpoint, an escort. It could be an LLC taxes and escort. Don't get me wrong. But from a tax standpoint, it's going to be that escort. Now, there's lots of other benefits. There's the uh, not only are there is the accountable plan there, but I also I could still do a 401k. I'm paying a small salary, which I could dump straight into my 401k. There's there's lots of other bells and whistles. But when I just look and I say, here's my S corp, here's sole proprietor. You're making fifty thousand. If I did nothing else, like. We know that the S-Corp gets a whole bunch of other benefits, but if we didn't even take advantage of them, all we did was use this as a money comes in and we pay a small salary and the rest of the money comes out. If that's all we did with the S-Corp and kept it super simple, you're still going to save yourself somewhere around four to $5,000 a year being the S-Corp. And I'm still shocked people want to be sole proprietors. I'm like, stop that. So the answer to your question is, as a uh, real estate agent, I would immediately go right to an S-Corp to start. And if you get really big, and we have guys that, that clear seven figures on a monthly basis, not on an annual basis, but we have some that are, that are some big hitters, that's when you add some complexity. That's when you're defining benefit plans. That's when you might have a management company. That's when you're starting to do other uh, activities in real estate to create losses that can offset if you can qualify as a real estate professional, things like that. There's lots of other ways to lower the tax bill. And then at the end of the day, I always say to people is, look, if you have a tax problem, that's a great problem to have. Mm-hmm. It means you're making a bunch of money. Quit whining about it, you know, minimize it, but be happy that you have that issue because there's a lot of people out there going, boy, I wish I had a tax problem. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, I just go off sometimes. It's very Anything interesting. You want to add on that? No, no. All right. You can follow Anderson on social media. The one I would drive you to guys, the one that uh, is where we have so many people get a lot of use is out of that YouTube, aba.link forward slash YouTube, or just go to YouTube and, and look for us. All right. I have been buying investment properties for the past five years and are under my name. So the last five years, I've been buying a bunch of properties. They're under my name. I have a separate personal account where my rental income is deposited. My question is, how should I formalize my business structure if they're under my name and personal account? Let's say you, Jeff. My suggested route for this would be to form a partnership. I would have a corporation be the general partner and me be the limited partner or limited member. And I would then put the properties, I would contribute the properties to the partnership. Going back to what we always say, one LLC per partner if you can, or for property, if you can do that. If you can't, you just need to consider what your risk level is. So I have all my properties in the partnership. The corporation is responsible for running them. The corporation, we can pay them a management fee to help uh, manage how much income is coming to me personally. The the one thing I I, kind of wonder about is if we're looking at substantial losses, do we want to consider a real estate professional here? And in that case, maybe we don't put them in a partnership. But we could still have a corporation managing these entities. Well, I'm going to ask you what you think about this. Well, it's just, at its most simple phrase is just because you own it individually now doesn't mean that you can't put it into a separate LLC. Right. And depending on how much equity you have in the properties, like the, 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 the best advice, the best practices is to separate each property in a separate LLC uh, unless you just don't have a whole bunch of equity in them. And then there's, there's some argument that, that maybe you could divvy them up. Me personally, at this point, I'm always like just separate LLC. Like why mess around with it? Just, just keep it the, 
the best thing for you because those properties are all income generators. You don't want to you don't want to lose the the income off of a property because you decided to play it cheap on a on an LLC or you know you didn't you wanted to avoid the hundred dollar fee or whatever it was every year uh, with the state. So don't do that. <laughs> it's not that difficult. It's very very common. So even though you have your own separate bank account, nobody cares from a standpoint of the IRS or asset protection. If it's in your name, it's in your name. It's like it's in my right pocket versus my left pocket versus my back pocket. They don't care. Uh, it's all you. So what we want to do is set up separate boxes to hold on to those assets. So if anything happens to them, you don't lose all of your assets. And same thing with you. You know, if something happens to you that you don't lose all your properties as a result, when your kid gets into a car accident or whatnot, you don't, you just don't want these to come into play. So we tend to use LLCs. Jeff mentioned having a singular LLC that was a partnership that held the other LLCs. That singular LLC that would that would be taxed as a partnership, nine times out of 10 is going to be in Wyoming so that they could never take it from you. Because Wyoming says, hey, creditors can't take it. The most they can get is a charging order, which is a lien. So it keeps you from having to worry about the, uh, the asset disappearing. But uh, I wouldn't worry about it at two seconds. Just everybody generally has to start off buying things in their name, uh, especially, gosh, I remember 20 years ago, you couldn't get a loan in an LLC. You had to get it individually then. And then and, uh, at closing, you'd put it in the LLC. So it wasn't that uncommon. Nowadays, they're far more likely to let you close directly in the LLC. But uh, in some cases, if you have a traditional loan, there's still the bank's going to say, hey, Jeff, could you put it in your name so we can close and then we'll put it back? <laughs> All right. You know, that's still not that uncommon. So don't think this is not fixable. There we go. Thank you. All right. I buy and sell vacant land. I typically buy, then resell with owner financing, deed of trust, mortgage, deed, et cetera. My question is twofold. One, would I be considered a dealer given I do somewhere around 400 properties a year, even though there's no structures and my intent is to resell on terms, not flip for cash? Would it be possible for me to save on taxes by becoming a LP, create a GP operated by an LLC that my team owns and operates? I put in money and stay out of it. I'm not very active as anyway. What do you think, Jeff? Doing 400 properties a year, I would say you're a dealer in land. Uh, you're, you're selling on terms, which I'm assuming it means seller financing, but you're not going to be able to use the installment method to recognize gain on these. You're basically selling inventory. It's going to be at ordinary income rates, and you're going to have to, if you sell 400 properties this year, you're going to have to recognize that income all this year when you file this tax return. Uh, would it be possible for me to save taxes by becoming an LP? Possibly. If, if you're doing this many sales in your own name, that's probably a really bad idea. Something is bound to go wrong. So I would at least put these in an LLC. What about an S corporation, Toby, rather than an LP? Yeah. So I think you bring up a good point. When you're buying and selling any property, it's an active <laughs> business. So, you know, if, if people weren't following you close enough, the installment sale is not available to you if, if, you're in, uh, if you're a dealer in real estate. And a dealer is somebody who buys property to sell it. Doesn't matter whether you're doing terms or not. Did I buy that property to hold it as inventory and sell it? It's no different than being a car dealership. So just like in a car dealership, when the car dealership sells the property, they may get financing for you, but they have to recognize all that income, whatever they received immediately. And that's the same thing here. So going down the path of using limited partnerships, I don't see that being something that's necessarily relevant here. You are in an active business of buying and selling inventory. So what I would be looking at is how do I isolate off my liabilities on those properties? So um, depending on the value of the land that you're buying, I might put separate LLCs together depending on the area of the country or if there's any distinguishing features so that 
if something bad happens in one area, it doesn't take out my entire business. And I might even uh, systematically, you know, close them periodically as I buy and sell. I might be doing that through a separate LLC for each tranche so that when I'm done, that my liability, I can close down that LLC and, and my liability goes with it. Uh, just because we've seen, I mean, I've seen 15 years after a sale, somebody coming after uh, people in, in, uh, that were in uh, the chain of title. So it's not something you want to see. I actually had a land dealer, somebody who did exactly what you're doing and uh, up in Seattle. And they came in, and I think it was 11 years after the sale. And what happens is if they ever discover a defect, they just associate it with everybody that, that had previously owned it and, and assert the claim against them all and let them fight it out. So what, one thing that he, the question asks is uh, becoming an LP, create a GP operated by an LLC that my team owns. Is that the best way to give some ownership to your management team or, or would an LLC do the same thing? So, I mean, it's the same thing, right? They're just using the vehicle limited partnership and saying here, the general partner is this other group and they're in control of everything. I would never advise a client to give up control unless it was something where I said, hey, you know what? If if this is really them, then maybe you should be doing participating loans. Maybe you should be doing just being a lender, a hard money lender to them and letting them make their money and your money, at least that way, would, would be, uh, you know, it'd still be ordinary income, it'd be portfolio income, but uh, you wouldn't be subject to self-employment tax. That's the only thing I could think of. Whenever I see this type of thing and they say, well, I'm not really doing anything. Yeah, you're probably in control of the whole thing and you control the purse strings and everybody else is going out and doing this, which again, just because we're saying, hey, this is a regular business, that's not a bad thing. Again, it's like being a really successful car dealership, except instead of selling cars, you're selling land. I would treat it identically. I'd make it an active business and I'd make sure that uh, I'd probably be looking and saying how much income is being generated on a consistent basis. And should I be using things like defined benefit plans? Would I be uh, better off saying since I'm in real estate, maybe I need to start accumulating some? and becoming a real estate professional and using that to offset the income that I'm going to be forced force fed over these installment sales, right? Because the installment sale does not work for, 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 for dealers, period. It's specifically, it's 4, 453, right? 26 USC 453, it specifically mm-hmm. says, except in the case of a dealer. So you don't get to spread it out over a period of, of, of years, so you're going to have to recognize that income. So we'd probably want to deploy some tax strategies to offset that. And uh, real estate happens to be the best game out there for those types of benefits. So good questions, guys. Hey, there's Infinity Investing again. I'm just going to throw that back up at you. If you guys want to join us on September 11th, we're going to have a really good good group. Pia Washington will be in the house teaching this, the stock market landlord. Nicole DeBrasio will be going over uh, real estate, and I'm sure I'll have Aaron Adams sticking his head in there too, because there's so much cool stuff going on in the real estate market. If you haven't been paying attention, real estate's going nuts, and it's not. It doesn't look like it's slowing down. Although I wish I had a nickel for every day somebody said, "Oh, it's going to crash." No, not in the numbers I see. There's just it might flatten, but it's not. It's definitely not going down. Somebody said I'm going to keep going on. There's the YouTube said if there was one area that I would go and spend some time, that's where I would go. And let's see, are there any other questions that you saw out there that you want to answer? I did not see any others that I wanted to answer. Maybe I should put Perfect. Well, if you guys like this sort of information, if you like Tax Tuesdays and you like a little bit of brain food, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, AndersonAdvisors.com forward slash podcast. Please go in. We have a we have actually a really good listening base. Like we were looking at the year over year numbers and it's, you guys are good. You guys go in and you guys watch them. Even if you can't be here, you guys are really good about popping on, but you'll see that we're always throwing different guests in and we're having some fun talking about finances and tax and all that good stuff. If you're a platinum member, you can go in and watch the, the tax Tuesdays. They're always a kick in the pants. 
And if you want to ask questions, just email us, taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com. Our guys today, uh, between Dana and Pio and Elliot and Christos and Ian and Ander and Patty and like, I think I already said, Dana, you guys just all, they've already answered 185 questions in writing. So, uh, you know, so you can always just pop on in and ask us a question. I'm just going to tell you guys that I'm not aware of anybody else out there that's a, that's an attorney or an account, that's an accountant that would grab their staff and, and answer these types of questions just live. Most people are too scared. You know, they always want to go back in and read up on everything. And I'm like, no, let's just, you know, do the best that we can share information, you know, every day that it, every now and again, Jeff and I screw something up and you know what, there's always a CPA out there that, that says, Hey guys, you screwed that up. Here's this. We're like, Oh, it's a good thing. We have people listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. So anyway, somebody says, love, love these things. I'm a customer and it helps me be a better customer. Yeah. Thanks guys. Well, then I would just say, uh, Jeff, have a great day. And uh, thanks for being willing to jump on the Zoom. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.